it feels like a lot of people aren't finding in the church or in their families or whatever. They're not finding places of healthy belonging. They're not finding safe places to make mistakes and to be held accountable and to be given grace to get up again and try. It's watering time, everybody. It's time for Apollo's Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. Have you ever got so into a conversation with someone and the conversation was so good and unfortunately the time was up and you realized that you were only just getting started? That's how it felt in my conversation with today's guest, Ann Snyder. Ann is the editor-in-chief of Comment Magazine. I wanted to bring Ann onto the show because I found Comment and I was intrigued by it, especially some of the articles that they had on the site. They drew me in because they seemed to be thinking about the issues that I was thinking about. And then I encountered Jerry Rude and I asked Jerry for a recommendation of someone to talk to and he mentioned Ann. And when she came onto the show, it didn't disappoint. Ann is a phenomenal communicator. And God is using her and comment to reach a very unique audience. Their mission is to do public theology for the common good. And I know some of you might be saying to yourselves, what in the world does that mean? Well, it means that they engage in conversations in the public square so that others might benefit from it. Or as they say on their website, comment is one of the core publications of Cardis, a think tank devoted to renewing North American social architecture rooted in 2000 years of Christian social thought. Now, again, you might be saying, okay, well, what does that mean? Well, basically, they're looking at our institutions and how our institutions had Judeo-Christian values at their creation, and they'd been heavily influenced by them, but many of them have departed, and they want to help renew that, to help people to see the foundations, to see how they've been shaped, and how our culture across the board has been shaped by these Judeo-Christian values. You can see why I wanted to talk with her, because we're both dedicated to renewal, and we're both dedicated to helping people think deeply about who God is and what his plans and purposes are for the world. Our expressions and mediums may be different, but our mission is actually very similar. This is what their website says about the magazine. Comment is not here just to celebrate and affirm that it's good for Christians to engage in the many diverse spheres of our culture. You know that. You want more. So Comment is not another worldview magazine. Instead, it goes beyond the why and looks at how we actually get down to the difficult work of being faithfully present in culture. Faithfully present. I love that. That's our kind of endeavor. And as you're about to hear, Anne is our kind of thinker, and I think you're going to love her. I'm always excited to introduce people to help us grow in wisdom and so that we might understand some aspects of what we call the Missio Holistic Approach, so that we might be able to live skillfully and accomplish the mission God has called us to in the world. Or as the proverb says, walk with the wise and become wise, associate with fools and get in trouble. Anne is wise and will help us to grow in wisdom as we think through how to engage in our world today. But before we get to Anne, I have a couple of announcements. We've been giving you deep conversations once a week, but we have so many people that we want to talk to or that we have talked to, and the episodes are just sitting there, that in our traditional format that we have right now, it would be over a year before they would ever see the light of day. So rather than release one episode a week, we'll be doing two, releasing on Tuesdays and Thursdays, a part one and part two if necessary. That's the first announcement. Secondly, we have just launched our 10 for 10 challenge, where we are asking for 10 new watering partners to join us by giving at least $10 a month. If you've been blessed by this show, then sign up. It's simply two coffees at Starbucks. That's it. Go to apolloswater.org, click the support us button. And by doing that, you are becoming a watering warrior, standing in the dry places, pouring out the water of life to bring water where life is languishing. Now, with that in mind, let's get to my conversation with Ann Snyder. Happy listening. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da
Dan Snyder, welcome to Apollo's Water. Thank you. This is a fire hose already. Oh, and I've toned it back. I really toned it back <laughs> really? just for you. Okay. You know, you're kind you of need ch- to hold back. I can handle it. Oh, I don't know. I was if you the can. dramatic roller coaster girl growing up. So you can I can I can, <laughs> I can I can go for it. Okay. All right. Well, let's let's see what we have here. Are you ready for the fast five? I think so. Well, actually, I don't think so, but we'll see what comes out. All right. You are in DC now, mm-hmm. but you spent a long time in Houston, Texas. So DC or Houston? Houston, hands down. Why? Um, Okay, not the prettiest city in the world. Admittedly, it's like an urban jungle that just the freeways never end. And sometimes there's 16 lanes. But the people, the food, the spirit of future orientation and chutzpah to collaborate with whomever, the embrace of difference, not the fear of it. And um, surprisingly beautiful artistic sensibilities once you get past the concrete and inside people's homes inside museums inside pop-ups all sorts of things i just felt like it was the new ellis island of our day when i was there um and yeah i feel very homesick for a place that i wasn't even born in but it's just uh gives me hope for america that city how many years were you in houston you know, I was only there for three years, but it captured me. It was had a bit of a vulnerable transition time of my life. And um, I had been in D.C. before and back now. Uh, but there's just something about the lack of pretentiousness that and even though it was such an unwieldy, sprawling place physically, I just found layers and layers of people who embraced me like family there when I needed it. Mm. So I'll never I'll never forget it. Never forget that, that city. That's pretty awesome. That's yeah. pretty awesome. So how about this then? This doesn't have to be in Houston. This could be anywhere. But my okay. favorite date restaurant, you're going on a date. Ooh. Your favorite Ooh. date restaurant is what? Gosh, well, I don't know why I'm going to say this because my husband has not taken me here, but this is what first came to mind. The um, like a teppanyaki place where they cook in front of you. <laughs> I don't know why that first came to mind, but it's like, well, let me go back to my dating days, like pre-covenantal permanent relationship. If you feel like there's going to be awkwardness, it's nice to have a bit of a show in front of you that you can interact with and like talk about a lot of other things that are inspired by someone lighting their hands on fire or throwing an egg in the air. So I need to tell my husband to take me there. I think we're past the awkward stage, I hope. But Okay, wait a minute. Um, what did you what did you call it, though? I, I well, am, get to... I, am I not calling it right? Like it's sort of a Japanese te- teppanyaki? Where they, teppanyaki? Where like, I've never heard that word before. Teppanyaki. Right. I mean, if you I'm could wrong, be right. You're the you're the editor in chief. Um, should, should we Google I, this? Oh no, I don't know. I, I don't know. No, I the internet is our friend in these ways. I, I grew I, up in Hong Kong, but actually have still never been to Japan. Um, I'm hoping to change that. Yeah, it's um teppanyaki, T-E-P-P-A-N-Y-A-K-I. I have um, learned something. Do you have educated hibachi. me? It's a post-World War II style of Japanese oh, cuisine. So hibachi is it? Well, hibachi. maybe it's Let's just say it's either or, and we'll get the facts right afterwards. Hibachi or teppanyaki? <laughs> teppanyaki. <laughs> it's the title okay. for the podcast. <laughs> teppanyaki. Yeah, that'll get a lot of hits. <laughs> okay, here's the third one. My most annoying habit to those closest to me is what? Oh, falling asleep as soon as I'm like horizontal. I used to be like a bookworm till later. Like I just... I, as I get older, I, as soon as it's like, especially in winter and it goes dark uh, earlier, I just like, I, I fall asleep really easily. And for anyone, whether I'm traveling and I'm with a girlfriend and she happens to be staying like, you know, or husband or whatever, they're just like, how do you, how are you asleep already? I thought we were going to have a great conversation. So yeah. You don't fall asleep in podcasts though, do you? Uh, hopefully not. It depends. Yeah. Let's, let's keep, let's keep going. <laughs> I I have a problem of falling asleep anywhere. I, I can fall asleep. So anywhere. you're I, like, I, I am. Yeah. I have fallen asleep in the middle of music rehearsals of a choir. I was in, I played basketball as a teenager. I mean, you're talking like 40 years ago, 30 years ago now, but I could fall asleep in basketball practice in a drill. It was the craziest thing in the world. I still to this day, if we're driving with my family, I have to, if I eat, I have to pull over for 15 minutes and I'm great. 
but, but it annoys my family. It annoys so, them. Today. But you wouldn't be like on your way to a layup and then just collapse. No, it wasn't like I'm, that. Okay. Not, okay. Nar- not narcolepsy. Sure. Yeah. yeah okay. Not narcolepsy. Not narcolepsy. <laughs> just falling was, asleep. Oh. When I was in, speaking of teenagerhood, um, I sang in a high school choir and there was a very memorable episode. I don't think it was narcolepsy or even so much sleep, but we were singing, we were performing in a super hot uh, like auditorium was just like so stagnant. None of it was hard to breathe. And there was a very prominent tenor, super tall. He was like six foot three or four. And so it kind of like stood out in the men's section. And um, he had something that heat hit him and he fainted in the midst of like, I don't know, we were doing Carmina Burana or something really dramatic. <laughs> and then he like just collapses and falls. And it was like the whole tenor section of domino effect. They all just uh, went down. In the performance? And, um, during the in performance? In the performance, yeah. It was, oh. I'll never forget. I think I was a sophomore, junior. And um, yeah, that's probably not sleep, you know, pose. I do. I remember we had to bring out, you know, splash of water and all that to revive him. But oh. um, yeah, it was, it was kind of a funny scene. If TikTok had existed, it would have been like the perfect GIF, <laughs> GIF, whatever the, however you're yeah. supposed to pronounce that. <laughs> yeah. I still don't know. Every time I get it, I, I don't, don't know. either. I have no I idea. Know. We're, we're old. We fall asleep anywhere and we don't know how to pronounce <sighs> digital acronyms. <laughs> okay. Now you're making me feel old. All right. <laughs> let's go. Let's go to number four because you are an editor in chief. What is the best journalistic advice you've ever received? Well, this is the best advice I've ever received. Uh, although it goes like I was just rereading famous Orwell's has like five rules of writing that are really great. Like don't use a big word when a small one will do. Don't use mixed mm-hmm. metaphors. And I was just reviewing them yesterday, refreshing. And I was like, oh, so much pain ahead of me. Even I still have to, I definitely still break these rules. But the best piece of advice that was ever given to me was, your verbs need to grow up. So I don't know if that's always true in like hard news reporting, but in the kind of writing we publish at comment and what I try to do is try to avoid the verb or derivatives of the verb to be. So like is, are, like there's always, there can always be a more interesting, precise verb. So have fun with that. So I, mm. that's, I'm sort of attracted to people who take adventures with words, which um, my fellow editors may not always like, but I think it's having, you know, painting with prose is, um, you know, you want to make things zippy for the reader. Oh. So, hmm. But I'm not sure like a normal newspaper, like an actual hard news story type of reporter would agree with me at all. <laughs> they, it's mm. supposed to be very direct. In fact, in my own marriage, because I'm married to a journalist, he'll often say like, there's two of us in this marriage. One of us is a pointer. One of us is a painter and it's very obvious who the painter is and it's not him. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So I think, what, you know, maybe I'll take back. If there's, I'm trying to think if there's another great journalistic piece of advice. Yeah. Don't, I guess, um, I mean, what you would say to most early reporters is just never say no. Like say yes to every experience and interview you can get uh, because mm. The sort of the more prismatic exposure you have, the better story you'll be able to write. That's awesome. I actually, I like that one. The verb one freaks me out because in my yeah, head, I'm okay. going, now I'm like, I got to say all these words now right now. Judging you? Oh, I'm like an idiot. <laughs> I barely no. speak English. I can't hardly. even remember the, the Japanese word you gave that was it? It's not I, well, that was a Google. That was a Google reward. So oh, we don't have to Google. count that. Okay. Gosh, maybe you feel dumb, man. Thanks. I'm sorry. Thanks I, know. A lot. I don't know how to make friends and influence people. I'm sorry. <laughs> oh, that's okay. I often feel that way. I feel that <laughs> way all the time. You know, as I get older, though, it's even that way with my kids. Like, I'll say stuff in my kids. You know, I grew up watching Sesame Street, and there was always this, this little bit in the middle of the show where you would have this, like, Sam Eagle, like, turning his head like this. And my kids are doing that to me now. They're like, Dad, just stop. Just stop, Dad. Don't do TikTok. Just please don't say that word, Dad. You sound so just stupid, be your age, Dad. Dad. Just, be just be your age, Dad. Like, just be your age. Just be yourself. I'm like, I am. That's why I'm saying it right now. And You're like, like, I'm a lifelong learner. Stop. Let me adjust to your coolness. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, your coolness. And they're like, yeah, no. No, Dad, please stop. It's like, hey, I'm going to do it anyway. I love making my kids. It's the best part of being a dad. Okay. Number five. If you were a design style, what design style would you be and why? Ooh. Oh, no, I don't know. I don't even know if I know a name of a design style. Are we talking like architecture, clothing, interior? I don't know. What, Whatever what you want it to be. 
Oh man. <laughs> that makes it worse, doesn't it? How about interior well, decorating? How about that? I get, I don't know. Well, let me just, I do have a, th- like a lot of us, I enjoy, I've, I'm particular about my email font. Well, that, is that a way of answering it? So I really like <laughs> email you know, font. You, like you find a font that feels like it represents somehow your, Je ne sais quoi, your your fragrance, your your, like style, your personality. Exactly. Yeah. So I've come to like a font called Palatino. Oh. Um, so like that's the way I know how to answer it. That's like the classic writerly response. Very lame. Um, <laughs> like not design style. I'm going to think in terms of fonts. I mean, so, I will say I do because I grew up overseas. My, I think there is a, I love strong primary colors like reds and blues and like none of, I, well, I happen to be wearing pastels today, but in general, I don't like, like the pastel thing. Not so much. I you know, just like, let's be bold. Let's celebrate the mm. world. And so, yeah, that's like, I go more towards like dramatic. I love that though. I love that. You've mentioned you grew up overseas. So I, I want to yeah. explore a little bit of your biography because you mentioned okay. Hong Kong. You've been in Houston. You went to Wheaton. I know, I know you went, according to your public right. persona, you've gone to Georgetown too. Mm. Um, and now you're in DC, but give us a little bit of your, your bio. Sure. Yeah. So I was um, just geographically, I'm a bit of a mutt. I um, love meeting people who have very strong roots in one place and go back generations in one zip code. And I'm always a little envious, but we, you know, there's pros and cons to, to both. So I born in Boston uh, when I was four, my uh, family moved to Hong Kong. When I was eight, moved to Sydney, Australia. We had quite a, a lot of opportunities in that time to travel around mostly South, uh, East Asia. And then, and then came back to the Boston area. So it wasn't, wasn't forever. It was, you know, just a little over six years, but it was enough of that kind of magic formation time where it didn't really know any different that it was a little unusual to feel like one of the only Americans in a context and all that. So I think it did just give me a forever bug to kind of be on the edge of the inside of different kinds of more homogenous communities and, and be fascinated by cultural comparisons so yeah, back in the New England area, I heard, you know, you talk about going to Gordon-Conwell. I, yeah. before we moved overseas, actually, I, I pseudo learned how to walk according to parental lore on Crane's Beach. <laughs> Did you ever go there? Oh, yeah. Of course. Yes. And there was like a great apple farm nearby. I can't remember what it's called in, in uh, Ipswich or. Yeah. I just remember like apple donuts and stuff. So we would, when we moved back to the uh, Boston area, we wound up in a town called Andover on the North shore. Yeah. So I. On the North Shore. On the North Shore. Yeah, I can't quite do the accent. See, I was in Peabody. I mean, I can pass the pad. That's the only thing. That's like too cliche. But beyond (laughs) that, I really can't do the accent. It's funny. Neither of my parents are from the area, so they didn't have the accent. (sighs) And, And then I went to a high school. I was a day student, but I went to this high school that attracted boarding students from all over the world. And so it just, there wasn't like a huge New England. I mean, it was New England. There was, it was New England institutionally. It wasn't so New England. Culturally. Like, culturally. So uh, that was that. Very pretty, you know, wonderful high school in many ways. Very rigorous. A uh, unique experience, I think, to be that age and back in a bit of an international environment. Very secular. I had a sort of conversion experience as a sophomore in the context of a church youth group. Grace Chapel, if that church means yeah. anything to you. Yeah. And, um, and then read this book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind when I was a junior or senior and uh, found it very <laughs> intriguing and thought, OK, all my peers here are going to largely New England colleges, maybe like pretty elite schools. I'm going to go to my college counselor and see if she's ever heard of a place called Wheaton College in Illinois, if that's where this guy Mark Knoll used to be. I'm just interested in this whole idea of integrating faith and learning. And I remember the college counseling office was like, what is this? Why would you leave a place like Andover and go to a place like Wheaton? That seems like a big step backwards in all the sort of meritocratic norms that they had as like what what mattered in terms of prestige and name brand yeah. and recognition and and just the fact that it had, you know, this is before the word evangelical became a four letter word, but it mm-hmm. still was affiliated with kind of a subculture that a, a sort of New England brain thought was like anathema to everything good and enlightened and sophisticated. So is it, uh, so anyways, I, but I wind up, I did wind up choosing to go to Wheaton. And, um, so that was its own huge culture shock and 
great formation. Um, I can keep going. Should I, you want me to just yeah, keep going? Yeah. This okay. is awesome. Um, so yeah, Wheaton in perfect place, but for me and given my kind of where I'd come from, very grateful for that education in that time, I wound up as a philosophy major. I was like the only person who didn't have dreadlocks in that major, but I loved it. <laughs> um, pretty male dominated. I would say, um, I kind of liked that too. Actually it was fun. Like, I don't know. You just like, um, I, I, well, I don't mean that in an overly, I mean, maybe there was some flirting going on, but it was probably more just like in the Wheaton context, these Christian colleges can be very, why are you laughing? <laughs> no, because I went to Christian colleges. I know exactly what you're talking yeah, about. So like, this is kind of so, way you flirt, you know, it's just the way it goes. It's just the way. And I think sometimes I felt like it was a shock to me coming from a pretty academically aggressive, no holds barred intellectual environment in high school to go to context like Wheaton, which under the water, I joke like Wheaties are kind of like swans, like acting very chill and smooth and like gliding across the water above, but underneath they're like going furiously, but they're not going to show off about that. It's because you need to sort of be a little bit publicly pious or it's like, we care about who you are, (laughs) not what you do, like all those things, which are, I would say good values, but as it pertained to gender, and this is going back 20 years, but um, there were certain, I think there was some hangover from an earlier era where it sort of seemed like if you were a female student, you were either going to teach kindergarten and get married by 20, age 22, 23, and nothing wrong at all with either of those things, but the sort of like impulse to express an original thought and challenge mm. a professor and duke it out, all of those kinds of modes of engaging with ideas uh, tended to be more of like a male thing in, a, in, mm. a, in that sort of Christian college context. So I was attracted to the philosophy major because it kind of felt like a place of permission to just go for yeah. it in those ways. Yeah. I wasn't great at it. I, I remember getting quite a few C's and B's. So it was hard, but I loved it. And that combined with, um, had a very impressionable experience digging ditches in Honduras, which is just one of those like moments of realizing maybe I have, I'm called to be some form of a bridge builder. There was something mm-hmm. in that experience combined with, I think, you know, you talk about your um, church and Aurora mm-hmm. and how you know, you were kind of between these like radically different worlds and, yeah. and also just radically different days, like what people's concerns were, the, oh my gosh. um, just yeah. so different in the nature of frankly, the level of suffering, the communitarian versus individualistic, how we treat time. And I felt like that just in this brief experience in Honduras, uh, seeing like levels of, of sort of poverty and chaos on the one hand paired with extraordinary communitarian cohesion over and above sort of a set of American colleagues who were um, not at all sure how to handle and myself somewhat included, you know, how to handle the level of like impoverishment and gender relations and all that. Anyways, there's a lot of dynamics I can describe, but there was something in this very particular experience that was embodied that was where I found myself in this position of kind of translating culturally and linguistically. And I view it as sort of like the beginning of I don't know what this will look like in my life, but somehow maybe I have I've been given some tools um, and life experiences to um, exist on the borders between communities and help them understand one another, whether that's generational or social class or cultural or whatever. Um, and that continues to be, I think, just like an inner, um, drumbeat in me that I'm grateful kind of happened when I was in college at 19 in a way that was like outside of the cerebral seminar of Kierkegaard. I mean, you know, there were were relationships between what I was studying, but it was like, I really did not think I would end up in the intellectual sphere. When I left Wheaton, I was convinced I was going to like be very grassroots, like work in real communities, get my hands dirty, sleeves up. I didn't quite know what that would look like, but, and somewhat to my surprise, the only jobs that I could get immediately following were in this like weird world called the think tank world. <laughs> so that's what I wound up in. And that was a journey of kind of, I I was put with, um, in, in a program, a foreign policy program as like a research assistant. And we worked with a lot of journalists and pretty sophisticated journalists. So that was kind of my exposure. The theory of change was like, if you can influence the media, hold events for them and educate them on in that at the time we were, 
it was like a program related to Iran and Venezuela. And it was kind of random in retrospect. And there was, yeah, I was very naive politically as his own story. So I come to DC a bit like this is the job that hired me. I like the idea. I had also been international relations major in college. I like the idea mm. of doing something global related. Maybe this could be a path to being in the foreign service. Like, you know, you're just like open to whatever that rings at all of anything you've touched in your life. To my surprise, I wind up like hanging out with all these journalists all the time through this think tank program. And I just was so attracted to the ways in which they could be 70 years old and they were still so curious. They just had this lifelong learning zest about them that they weren't bored basically. And they, they, there was, there was just something about the earnestness with which they wanted to uncover reality. And of course, there's so much I could say about media now that I've been more in and out of it. And, you know, so many dynamics have shifted over the last 20 years, particularly as media has become more I think politicized on all sides. Um, but at the time, all I saw was people who really wanted to render an honest story. Um, so that appealed to me. And I kind of migrated into the world of magazines and the newspapers in DC um, and was still interested in bringing like a higher conceptual philosophical set of categories, but didn't wasn't so interested in just having that rest at like systematic, broad-based, top-down levels. I wanted to be in real lives at gritty crossroads. So I got very interested in kind of what's happening as second, third, fourth generation immigrants in the U.S. How are they negotiating their identity? What are their trusted information channels? All of that. And so I was somehow had a few journalistic opportunities basically freelance people who found out of my background and they were like, it seems like you could have given us some insight into some of these different ethnic communities and different at different generational levels in terms of how long they've been in the U S you know, could you write about why certain people are voting a certain way or where people are trusting where information comes from? How are people finding out about job opportunities who are outside of the main dominant culture? So that was like, all just felt like heaven to me because I, I think it reminded me of growing the way I grew up and I had sort of a grid for how certain communities, like a humble grid, not, you know, it's not like I was grown up in rural Korea and suddenly knew what it meant to be a 1.5 Korean immigrant, but there was enough um, in my own background. And I think just the yeah. dinner table I grew up in that helped me basically have these just joy filled interviews with people who would open up. And it actually really helped to be a person of faith. Like I was finding I, you know, I was working for pretty secular media outlets at the time, and there were very few journalists who had a transcendent frame of reference. It's a pretty, it's, it's a pretty secular workforce uh, by and large. And I found that just believing in God helped me get into certain kinds of Buddhist temples and who Hindu this. And of course, you know, Vietnamese Jesuit communities and Korean Presbyterian and Nigerian Pentecostal. Like there was something about the religious understanding that both helped me ask questions in an interview that was sort of beneath the waves. It's hard to describe. And, you know, I was welcomed into a very core civic institution, especially for those who were still first, second generation Americans or, you know, mm -hmm. they're still in that, yeah. that journey. There was a way in which, and I, I sometimes I'd like to tell more secular journalists this, like not that this is going to compel them towards a faith journey, but I sometimes want to say, like, I feel like you're not trusted and you don't have access to what's actually going on in a variety of different ethnic communities and our burgeoning demographic unfurling in the U.S. because your frames of reference are all Harvard or are all you know, the debt ceiling, like, like there's a way in which if you're not able to sort of do the practices and share religious practice with another, who's very different from you culturally, you're not really going to ascertain that much that could ever about a given community and how it operates. So I don't know mm -hmm. if that makes sense, but it was kind of this like delicious secret. I felt like I discovered gave me entree surprisingly into all kinds of people groups and their homes and hospitals and bedsides and, you know, mentoring. I mean, it was just really fascinating. So mm. that, then I was given a chance kind of, I did some writing on some of those dynamics around identity and how do you think about the traditions and the moral traditions you've inherited from your typically more conservative homeland. And then this yeah. individualistic materialistic country called America, yeah. how do you negotiate, how do you handle your kids who are, 
if you know, if you're the first generation parent and you're watching them become more American, this is exactly what you want for them at the same time. You're mourning the loss of certain values as you watch them kind of take on a more modern American consciousness. So all of that. And I was at a foundation in Texas, was intrigued by, by I guess what I was writing about, how I was writing about it and invited me to come to Houston. And they were like, if you're really interested in these dynamics of America's demography and how it's shifting and which institutions are embracing those shifts and which are struggling, come to a city that is just exploding at the seams with some, I think at the time it was the most diverse, most languages in the U.S. city in the country, which none of my New Yorker friends understood. I think they were like, mm-hmm. Houston, that's like all cowboys, right? And I was like, actually, no, it really is the world. Course, yeah. um, so I said, yes, yeah. so and that was a total adventure. And I got to tell all kinds of longer form, usually magazine stories and was paid to do it. Uh, and I had a steady way to put bread on my table by this a foundation called the HE Butt Foundation, which also supports something some of your listeners may be familiar with called Laity Lodge in the Hill Country, mm. uh, which is sort of an ecumenical retreat center. So there was also like kind of a faith appreciation through that foundation as they were kind of experimenting with nonprofit journalism. And yeah, so none of these things would I have ever imagined when I was 18. Like you don't know about these like weird career paths <laughs> when you're young. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Watered, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the new living translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLT Bibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. Why were you, your, your family in Hong Kong? I mean, go from Hong Kong, Australia, were they, what were they doing? My dad um, worked for a Boston-based bank in foreign exchange currency trading. So they were interested in having him start a branch of the bank in Hong Kong and then also in Sydney. And my mother had been the daughter of uh, Bible translators slash linguists in Peru. So we kind of had this, that was the other part of the background was our apartments and our homes had a bit of this like Peruvian indigenous flavor from her growing up years in the Amazon, but our sort of external relations and friendships as a family, when we were living over there were more kind of, you know, cosmopolitan diplomatic finance, that sort of tier in Asia. So sort of like Latin America indigenous plus, you know, Hong Kong global finance, interesting you know, I, I don't know what else. It's sort of an interesting way to, it's very uh, eclectic. Try to make I mean, sense of the world. It is eclectic. Yeah. Southern Northern Hemisphere. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's fascinating to see just your cultural experiences and how that shaped informs you. I mean, having Wheaton as a base and then yeah. exploring this new world of Houston. And it is one of the most diverse places in the world. I know, especially in the United States and a lot of I'd say a lot of uh, majority world uh, or a majority of Americans yeah. would be unfamiliar with that, no matter what your cultural background is, unless you're they, in, in that, right. that diverse world. So you're in Houston, right. you're working for a foundation, you're writing, but then what happened? And then um, about three years in, I got a phone call from an organization that I had heard of, but I had always wondered kind of what they did and they've shifted. So I'll just preface to say they've shifted a bit in ways that I don't love now, to be honest, I can say that on air, but they, it's called the philanthropy round table. And basically it's like a gathering or it's a, um, it's an organization that tries to help foundations and individual donors give more wisely kind of according to their values. So they were, there was a group of donors who were kind of members of this essentially association Mm. that were getting very concerned about the fact that it felt like 
character building institutions were running out of fashion and who was really kind of like, where are the, where are the Boy Scouts anymore? Like, how come we don't seem to have as many institutions, both in our education system, public and private families, sports, like it just feels like the moral layer of, of giving people like beautiful desires and well-ordered loves and all that, that that's kind of gone by the wayside in a more technocratic nation mm-hmm. that or in a nation that's kind of like stopped asking questions of why and what for, and that we become, you know, our metrics of the good life are a little whacked out. Um, so it's a big unwieldy kind of curiosity and concern. And these donors or this sort of initial set of foundations and individuals were asked the round table to develop a program called the character initiative where some, they would hire someone to go out and figure out how is character being shaped in a very pluralist new 21st century. That was not as arguably kind of culturally homogenous, morally mm-hmm. didn't have as much of a shared kind of moral frame of reference as one might argue had occurred a hundred years prior when a lot of like the Boy Scouts and the YMCA and the Settlement House Movement and the Temperance Movement and all those kind of that interesting progressive flowering of these like big civic institutions that had local manifestations occurred. And basically they were like, could that happen again today, even though we're such a, we're a much more diverse society. So they, the roundtable somehow at that point, I think I had published enough things at the intersections of like culture, institutions and institutional health, demographic shifts, and a little bit of sort of religion and values. It's like kind of a random assortment. They got a hold of me and I had had some contacts in DC. So I, there was a few relationships I had built in DC in my first stint there that and the Flanfy Roundtables headquartered in DC. So they called and they said, Anne, you know, would you be interested in writing a book, like first doing, spend a year, like traveling the country, first understanding what these donors even mean by character across left and right, but then just go out and go across civil society and go to any institution that claims to be forming people morally and bring kind of your interest in and your sensitivity to cross-cultural dynamics into the question of moral formation. And would you write a book about it for us? And then maybe build, help build a more consequential, like coalition of donors around whatever principles you discern. So it was kind of this amazing question. I hesitated at first because I, I think there was like, it was like the Wheaton critic. It was like the Wheaton sort of like too clever by half DNA in me or something slash frankly, cause this is, and it's a secular organization and mm-hmm. more conservative, more politically conservative, but not necessarily faithful that was sort of asking, had interest in this question. And I was like, character, like, I don't know. I don't want to be like the goody goody, like Bill Bennett wrote the book of virtues. Like what, you know, I don't know. I just sort of like, I don't know. I like, do we want to revive me? I was like, not that motivated at the time by mm. essentially like creating a boy scouts renaissance, which is sort of what I thought was being asked. But the more I thought about it, it just was, it felt like a new interesting step to kind of, yeah, almost give a little bit more of not a sermon to my vocate, but like a, there was a, there was, there was something attractive about be, Well, I'll just put it this way because my experience in Houston personally had been one where, like I said, at the outset, I really felt like I was given a series of substitute families in different communities and through certain kinds of institutions that took me in that kind of refashioned me after I had sort of just had a bit of a mess of things occur right before I left to go to you. And I think I was just like, I am very interested now in essentially this, the role of substitute families and, or at least the role of this broader web of institutions that whether you wanted to say it's the church or a voluntary association or a neighborhood outfit or an acapella group or uh, this sort of social service collection of volunteers or the arts, like, All of that diversity and sort of these collective forms in a place had not only rescued me, but sort of given me fresh purpose and nudged me and kind of at times disciplined me in ways when just, yeah, that's its own story. But even my place of work, I felt like was this more almost became like a church for me at, at a time when I needed it. So I was interested in this as like, it feels like a lot of people aren't finding in the church or in their families or whatever they're not finding places of healthy belonging. They're not finding safe places to make mistakes and to be held accountable and to be given grace to get up again and try. They're not being given exemplars 
friendships are declining, like all these things I was kind of aware of that I had experienced in my own idiosyncratic way in my biography. Okay. I'm like, what, what does it look like to strengthen, to name what a healthy institution and community is that can help forge a person's sense of the good and their interior life. And yeah, like I was just interested in this question of like individual agency and the conditions of an organization or community that you're a part of. So I said yes to the project. Um, That was its own adventure. It took about three years. I wind up eventually moving back to DC as the, because that's where the offices were tearfully left Houston. I still have maintained a lot of relationships there and will never not evangelize the surprise beauty of that city and wrote a book called The Fabric of Character, which essentially was a series of narratives about the most exemplary organizations I could find, community organizations, schools, arts, communities, um, interesting experiments in theater. And it was, and then I would, I sort of found this uh, rehab communities. I found this sort of pattern of underlying principles that are at work in a really formative ecosystem. And there are things like uh, rituals and liturgies and psychological safety and joy. Like is if the presence, if there is, if there is joy in the house, even you, know, you can think about this in a church context, usually that's a sign that something is right. And that's not the only thing, but there, so it's sort of like, I came up with these principles of like, there were many of them, 16 of character formation. Like if you as a donor, if you as an institutional leader can answer these questions of like, does your organization have a strong sense of T loss, what it is for a transcendent mission, all these things are kind of in place, then you can bet that either the organization you're thinking about supporting philanthropically, or that you're leading and that you're responsible for stewarding the culture. It was like a cultural audit for like healthy, mm. formative institutions. And I, that became this very fun tool that really didn't feel like I came up with it. It was more like I was just inductively, you know, I first journalistically went around, told, tried to paint a portrait of the most compelling communities that seemed to be saving lives and saving kind of moral trajectories. And then I found like a pattern across sector of what was actually going on in a really healthy collective um, and, na- and the power of sort of naming those first order principles just be, has become, and it continues to be, I think a toolkit for a variety of organizations who I, there was even interest actually, I don't think this unfortunately went anywhere, but there was interest from some Congress people, U S Congress. They were like, we would love to start a character caucus, like based on these 16 questions or these 16 principles, like what would it, how could we think of Congress as actually forming its members and not just being a platform. So it kind of, it was, I'm so grateful for that project. And just, it was also fun, frankly, to see the the way in which the naming of reality and storytelling and invitational questions animated by, I think, timeless principles of human flourishing and the true and the good could also animate a community and even a coalition of, in, in that case, sort of donors, doers, and thinkers together to kind of not necessarily build a movement, although that would be cool. I don't think I was the person to drive that, but to at least catalyze a united group of people. And so that words were not just to stay on the page, like the naming of reality, in this case, story and principles can actually galvanize like movement in the world. And it's for me to experience that was very delicious and to sort of convene and design events around the material. And so that was that. And then I'll end here because I'm tired of talking about myself. (laughs) Um, Comet Magazine, which had originally actually given me one of my first public writing opportunities before I moved to Houston, I think they had asked me to talk about like the relationship of politics and love, which I remember thinking was such a weird, that was like, those two things do not go together. This is apples and oranges. But I did my best to like do the splits between these two logics and uh, started writing for them a bit and just always appreciated this particular magazine's way of integrating my actual faith into large cultural questions, which was sort of felt like going back to Wheaton in some ways and just testing the bounds of head and heart and what are our convictions and what do we know, you know, how do what say what we're learning about social isolation or distrust or polarization or whatever impact the way we actually lead our lives. And I think that sort of distinctly Christian earnestness around, yes, we can analyze trends from afar, but ultimately if we are embodied creatures, like we also need to 
figure out our response in our own lives. If we have some of, if there's some relevance to our vocation and how we steward that vocation. So comma had been a place for me to explore some of this in public and writing and they believe in institutions. They believe in formation. They love civil society. Um, their tagline is public theology for the common good. And so I think mm-hmm. this work that I had done around institutions and formation and character just really was totally singing to their choir. So they reached mm-hmm. out and said, you know, we have an opening for a new editor in chief. And so that was its own discernment process. And I've been doing it now uh, right since right before COVID. So 2019. And it's been like the joy of my like the joy of my adult life to be stewarding this magazine in this season of North American life and try to figure out, you know, we are primarily a cultural magazine, but that doesn't mean we're apolitical. I've sometimes maybe shy away from political controversy, but, you know, trying to figure out how do we tap into and catalyze conversations around small dinner tables often for what you say, the audiences of your podcast, these like those in holy discontent who are, Often our audience tends to be those kind of typically local, though there are some national figures, but typically kind of local community shepherds. They could have an institutional Mm -hmm. leadership role or just be like a beloved, trusted neighbor in a neighborhood Mm -hmm. who are increasingly beleaguered and challenged and don't feel like they're getting the vocabulary or tools to sort of so into hopeful, constructive, common ground building work on the ground um, in their communities. And we're trying to provide succor and imagination and unlikely exemplars and even companions for the journey through the pages of a magazine. And I love, I love, you know, and that doesn't mean we avoid critique. Like we do have pieces that we're, we are quite critical and, you know, but we're trying to say, we do believe like 2000 years of Christian social thought can animate how we, you know, try to exist in this fragile democracy, how we think about treating all people as infinitely dignified, how we, you know, increasingly I'm getting pulled into, you know, okay, well, what do, what do you as a magazine think about all these trends and quote Christian nationalism, you know, so the, these political currents are happening and our, I feel like my job increasingly is like, okay, we need to be, we want to stay um, orthodox and address like the deeply pre-political human questions first, mm-hmm. but there are still implications if you're starting to see certain trends across on both far left and right that are fundamentally like dehumanizing and I would argue heretical <laughs> as mm-hmm. a, you know how do, how do we sort of define our turf it's it's I'll, I'll just close by saying I think people probably know me as being like aggressively committed to hope and not being overly a grouser or overly like focus on all the negative and I think my question these days and even trying to understand this historically is like insofar as we're in a moment where it feels like movements are largely fueled by fear and you could argue hate or just let's just say fear, sort of fear-based fuel, which I think is a function of politics sweeping into seeping into every part of life. Cause like the political, the political juice is often fear. It works really well. Mm-hmm. Is it also possible simultaneously for hope to fuel a movement or hope to fuel like a multi-tier community of people animated by philosophy grounded in self-sacrificing love. And yeah, I hope it's possible. I, I think historically you you do tend to see these two movements happening simultaneously, but it remains to, sometimes I think in the age of like what gets clicks and, you know, where are people really galvanized when they're outraged? You know, you see like when, if you're just looking at like mass numbers and it's, it, there are moments you get discouraged and you're like, gosh, is, is being a publication that's trying to be constructive and imaginative and a reforming one, not so much a revolutionary one. Is that, is that just going to stay very boutique and small? And it's not, it's not going to really mushroom um, because people are so addicted to the outrage machine. So it's an open question. I genuinely don't know, but we're, we're betting on hope. We're sweet. We're just, just even for my own sanity. I just, I can't go too far the other direction. How do I deal with what I'm feeling? Maybe I just don't. I just don't. What you do with I'm in ruins. 
touched on so many different things that actually we've talked about a lot, whether it's the formation, the understanding of institutions, the politicization of our culture. We've actually looked a lot at neuroscience and neurotheology as a subject in, in understanding spiritual formation and how our brains are actually wired. You mentioned joy, and that that has become kind of a hallmark of what we've been talking about because our brains are actually wired for it. You moved into belonging, and one of the things that we've noticed is even within the church, um, and, and speaking with some neurotheologians that we've had on the show frequently, is that our brains are actually wired for joy. And the first part of joy comes from seeing like our mother's face in the crib, that they're delighted yeah. to see us and our brain lights up. But he said our brains are actually wired to determine and reading faces from the time we're quite young, if a person enjoys being with us or not. And that joy is where it comes from, is someone mm -hmm. wanting to be with us. And unfortunately, within the faith communities, that's not been the case oftentimes. And I think, as you said, we're, we are addicted to outrage. We're addicted to outrage. We've, we've learned how to manipulate the emotion to get the clicks. I personally think, though, that you can only do that so long. Maybe I'm underestimating the power of fear, but I think that there is an adrenaline fatigue People but yeah, I do fatigue, weariness, exhaustion. Yep, I agree. And I think we've even seen that train play out since say like the summer of 2020. Like I somehow even even just hearing what people are saying about their New Year's resolutions this January 2023. Uh, it's been interesting. I'm just like attending to some like, what is the zeitgeist here? And um, I mean, there's a lot of things like slow focus. I want to be able to savor more full attentiveness. So there's that, which is really important and crucial in our time, but different communities that it's been, it just, it, because different communities have different reasons for outrage and exhaustion, um, as you would know well from many experiences, but especially that Aurora church you mentioned, I I'm sensing a lot of like quiet hidden constructive reimagining work happening in a lot of different communities as they're just tired of like the Instagram performativity and the sort of constant public condemnation. Like even if that's still happening out there, I'm sensing a lot of people just withdraw to more productive work. My only question mark is, are we getting back into certain kinds of silos and, you know, so that's, so that's kind of a, it's just a question mark I have. I don't, I don't fully know, but I do sense there's a response there. We've hit the sort of exhaustion peak. Yeah, I, I, I agree. But I, I love what you you're doing. One, one of the things that we talk about is the Semper Reformanda. We're always reforming. We're always rethinking. And we, one of our core values is exploring history. Um, when Oz Guinness was on the show, of course, he's like, you know, we don't know history anymore. We don't see the the cycles, the, the, the pendulum swings back and forth. But our time seems different in that everything is so public of, of what we're doing. And that's why you it seems that you've hit on the theme of embodiment. I mean, why has embodiment and the rediscovery of personhood become so important? You've written about that in comment. Um, why has it become so important today? I mean, so many reasons. Um... I think this is all in our mind, even as like the latest news about all these chat bots is like on every newspaper front page as like, you know, and I'm reading all these higher ed administrators and pedagogical designers are like, oh my goodness, we have to totally change the way we teach. And I mean, my first response to the whole chatbot thing, and this is me being naive, and I actually do need to read a lot more so because we need to engage on this seriously, but as a magazine, but I was like, I feel like this is just an opportunity to like really double down on the sliver, but maybe the big sliver of what human beings will only ever be, ever be able to do. And, and that has impact that has implications for how we think about the, you know, slowly dying liberal arts. Like, shouldn't this be the moment for the liberal arts to like come back with a vengeance, you know, somehow. And I think COVID for all of its bad, for all of its sort of tumult and of course, horrific ways in which it unequally struck so many families and communities just mortality, death, et cetera. There, there was, if there was one thing I noticed, I kind of ran this project called Breaking Ground Over COVID where I was trying to just like ask a wide array of people, what is this time revealing about our society, about ourselves? Mm -hmm. What can we learn from history? And like the common thing I think I got out of that project was people are attending and trying to name what is most human about us. And I do think embodiment and limits and our relational like finitude and our sort of relational wiring 
were the major takeaways for many, many, many people. Um, uh, I could name more attributes, but so, so I think, um, somehow it feels like a lot of religion and maybe this has been a, you know, this is maybe a true as ever since Jesus's time, but mm-hmm. feels like a lot of religious talk and focus sometimes like winds up being a distraction away from the needs and beauty and glory of the human person. Like there's sort of, I can't, I can't explain. I need to get clear on this in my own head, but sometimes it feels like a lot of theological talk and a lot of like hemming and hawing about the church falls accidentally into this like logic of empire or around numbers or sort of American metrics. of Like there's so many sort of conversations happening yeah. that seem to be ignoring. Well, the tangible the, realities on being human. Yes, exactly. Right. That were embodied, you know, I think in the fullest embodied human creatures. of all time, namely Christ himself. Right. Yeah. 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 So I, yeah, I just think this is an, there is an opening right now as so many people as everyone at different levels of consciousness are, are sort of are confronted with forces that seem to be making us feel less that making us feel more disintegrated, mm-hmm. um, less connected to others, totally unseen, you know, all the ways in which I think we just, we feel increasingly like tempted. Are we just becoming robots? Are we becoming machines? This is an opportunity for those animated by, I think, a Christian sort of understanding of the human person to speak and to speak constructively on a range of concrete issues, whether it's end of life and death, whether it's how we understand what the person is from cradle to grave. What I mean, there's many areas that even touch into policy. To answer your question, which is more how I wanted to answer it right away about embodiment and like our work, um, I think I just... Uh, this is even it, it it tags back to my wanting to leave more elite media circles and like get into the texture of real human lives. And in some mm-hmm. ways, leave like the realm of philosophy and into real communities, real human lives. That's partly dispositional. I naturally learn from practitioners and people who are just figuring out creative ways to love and to cover the gap, cover sort of the gaps where the vulnerable are falling through. I've always been drawn to the like nitty gritty practicalities of that in context. Yeah more than like an intellectual seminar. And yet there's something insofar as we're trying to spark new imagination for a more thriving society. I just don't think, especially in an age deluge with content, I just don't think you can be soft before an argument or an imaginative piece or even a story unless you are kind of talking about it or at least experiencing it relationally and ideally around like in hospitable setting with tables and food. So, so I've tried to build into the magazine itself. Like here we are a little bit, you said, you know, high middle brow intellectually, we like pitch at a certain level, these big questions around what does it mean to be human? And what does that, how is that threatened? And also what are the new opportunities in our day? How do we talk about that mm-hmm. in our context, in our particular vocational roles with accountability in relationship and allow conversations to get deeper that, that enable that sort of create the conditions for tears when necessary for great laughter for an aha moment about oneself or about one's neighborhood or about one's workplace where in some ways it's just like trying to be the church, (laughs) but I just have come to the conviction that especially in our day, things like persuasion, conversion, transformation, communion, all those beautiful things and experiences don't just, I mean, unless you are a gorgeous writer and who is extremely skilled and you're writing a novel, they just usually don't happen by yourself reading words on a page or even beautiful images. They somehow have to be shared and broken open with others. So that's just kind of my conviction. And yeah, there's, I don't, I'm not the neuroscience expert, but I have a funny feeling there's some brain science to back this up. <laughs> you can tell me. No, 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 no. You, 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 uh, to me, it all congeals. This, this is where all this comes together. And this is what I love about it. Really what you've just, to me is described is what the purpose of the church kind of is. And, and I know you're in a public arena, so it's a little bit different, but my, my world has been the church for over 20 years and having, you know, grown up in it too. So it's long, much longer than that. But this, this idea of embodiment, the transformation aspect, even, um, and I know we, I think we both talked to the same person, Kelly Capic, where he gets into, um, Yes. Oh, oh, I love yeah. Kelly's work. And well, yeah, he's fantastic. Yeah. And he's so fun to of, talk to. We had a lot of fun on the show because he was he was a guest on the show. But also Alan Noble. He wrote a book called um 
You're not your own. Yeah. Cause Alan was on the show. And then we have, um, gosh, I'm so like, honored. Really? What am I doing on here? And these are like, Oh no, you're the best one. You're the best <laughs> one so far. You are Hardly. the queen. <laughs> Uh, but Chris, your Christopher, rambler, your rambling uh, guest, <laughs> you know, uh, Christopher Watkin is coming on who just wrote the okay. most recent book, biblical critical theory. And it's on higher oh, Christian. Yes. Theory. I've been, I've been uh, a lot of people are talking about this. Yeah. It, I'm uh, it's on, it's on my, it's coming. It's coming my way. I think it's in my Amazon queue. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're trying to find these tangible ways because it was my contention that modernity has really shaped us as noble says in human ways. Humans have yes. created inhuman institutions and practices. And it's it's funny to me that even when you look, and I, I try to analyze this, it sounds so silly, but looking at Jesus movies, this is mm-hmm. going to sound weird. But in the beginning, the Jesus movies really focused on the deity of yes. Jesus. Mm-hmm. But as they've transitioned, it, it's because we, lo- we, we were so in touch with our hum- humanity, we needed the deity. But with the rise of technology mm-hmm. and the... the this the pseudo omnis, meaning that we're really not omniscient, but it feels like we can know everything. We really are not omnipresent, but we feel like we can be present with the social media and technology. We've lost touch, touch with our humanity. So yes. you see, even in like the chosen, the Jesus chosen. is becoming more mm-hmm. human. Yeah, um, he's, he's the disciples are superhuman, which is how huge. I hope they were. It's been encouraging to know what really was. Um, uh, not John. Um, oh, what's the Matt Peter? I was like, was Peter really such a badass? Like, I guess that's kind of encouraging. Like, we don't have to be all squeaky clean. <laughs> were we watching the? We were watching the video where he gets alone with his wife, <laughs> and yeah. we haven't seen each other for a while. And I was like, oh, I mean, I'm watching with my kids, I you know, know, and I'm sitting there going, oh, I know. But I'm like, okay, this Dad. is the most real episode I've ever seen in my life. Yeah, but yeah. even bringing Matthew being autistic. And mm-hmm. when he sends off James and uh, Simon the Zealot, you know, were you? No. Yeah. Yeah. The tax collector, Matthew, he sends off Matthew and Simon the Zealot, one who is trying, who's an anarchist and one who was working for the government. You know what I mean? And, and yeah. he brings these two together. Talk about political differences. But yeah. it seems that you guys have really tried to create and capture. And, and I love what you said. Give language, give language mm-hmm. to us who are, are working in the world and you're in a sphere that many of us have not familiar with. And we're, and I know we're not going to get to it today because we're, we're, we're out of time. I know that you have time that you have to keep. So we have to do this again because I we're just getting to. warmed up. We're just getting warmed up. I know we're I just feel the same up. way. I'm like, now we need to have a whole conversation about Christian humanism. And is that a phrase that will even work in it after generations of people thinking the word humanism is like horrible, but we need to have a long, much, yes. this is much longer conversation. Like spending a lot of my strategic and intellectual and just like, frankly, discerning time these days. Cause I, I think there's like, um, I don't know. I don't necessarily say like the Holy spirit, but I do think there is a something going on in this. There is a bridge moment. And I experienced mm-hmm. this even during the character project. Like I have a podcast called the whole person revolution, which is sort of what I wished I had been able to call this fabric of character book. But there is something, there is like this humanistic Renaissance happening in different quarters of our society and I, I just think this is like the open door for Christians to like really meditate on the humanity of Christ. Of course, not at the, at all at the expense of his divinity. And, but there, but there's something going on, even as we think about how Christianity is being used as a sponsor of certain cultural projects that are lifting up only certain kinds of humans as like the ideal human and not, I mean, there's just like many implications for how we think more deeply about the human person and Christianity's relation to that question over centuries throughout the world that I just find extremely important and timely Mm -hmm. and rich territory, but we need to do it in a way that like applies to the person running a healthcare center in Des Moines, you know? So like I need to, and that's, that's like the bridging, there's multiple bridging challenges, but we need, I would love to have a sequel conversation. About we this. are, we're going to have a sequel conversation. Cause you're, you're even opening up again. I'm like, no, we can't start another conversation right now. It's I so, it, cause I'm, I'm, I, I will geek out all day. Um, okay. Right before we finish up here, tell us how people can learn more about you and what you're doing. Well, I would love for people to check out comet.org, which is really, um, I mean, that is what I'm stewarding. Uh, it's not really me. I just feel like I'm this quiet conductor of voices much smarter and more interesting than me, but it's 
where we um, we have a couple of podcasts, one called Whole Person Revolution that sort of interviews more practitioners of some of the ideals we lift up in our pages. Another podcast called Zealots at the Gate, which is an interesting conversation around religion and democracy between a Muslim and an evangelical. We're just doing a lot of different things, experimenting with hospitality and ideas. And we're really right now trying to um, what we're trying to ask and experiment in real time. What does it look like to to mature a magazine into a real time community in the flesh in communities all over the U.S. uh, and Canada? So if you're interested in that, go to comment.org. See, we're piloting a lot of new things that are kind of stretching us outside of the pure publication space. And we need help and we need encouragement and um, we need champions of people who will kind of be willing to experiment with this. So comment.org. That's best I can say. Well, thank you, Anne, for coming on Apollo's Water. It's been really a joy. I told you, things were just really starting to heat up at the end. I love hearing the stories of people like Anne, learning how God has worked in their individual lives and has led them to live out their faith in interesting and challenging ways. Anne's international background, her her upbringing in New England, going to Wheaton and then to Houston, all brought her to the place she is now at at Comet Magazine and working to show the broader culture that 2,000 years of Christian social thinking has something to say to our broader culture today. I can't wait to have Anne back on the show to talk about this idea of hope. Animating a movement. I mean, we need that right now because we as Christians should be the most hopeful, not the least. Or even this idea of Christian humanism, that it sounds really scary on the surface, but the idea that Christianity should be for the common good is not or shouldn't be revolutionary to any of us. After all, did not God say to the prophet Jeremiah, to the Jewish exiles in Jeremiah 29, that they should pray and work for the peace and prosperity of the city of their exile? And that was Babylon. The epitome of evil and opposition to God, it's represented throughout the entire Bible that way. Why? Because God made us to reflect him in his glory. Christians can and should be a force for good in our societies, wherever they are. I can't wait to have another conversation with Anne, and I hope you will check out Comet Magazine and her book, Fabric of Character. Remember, we're in our 10 for 10 challenge. Go to apolloswater.org, click the support us button, select the amount that works for you. While we're looking for $10 a month, if you want to do more, that's fantastic. And we are grateful that you would choose to become a watering warrior with us. I want to thank our Apollos Water team for helping water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Watered. Stay watered, everybody. Stay watered, everybody.